I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Johnson. There was uh, huge news over the weekend in golf. Obviously, um, came from a Golf Digest report that broke that the USGA and RNA are going to be instituting a universal ball rollback for everyone. So with that in mind, uh, I decided to chat with our own Garrett Morrison, a co-host of this podcast, and really dive in to everything about the rollback. Obviously, we have not heard from the USGA yet on this. Uh, the report clearly came from some equipment companies that have been notified. So when we hear from the USGA I, and get all the details, I would guess that we will have another episode. But we go in great detail on on everything here. It, it's a crazy weekend with uh, people like Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy sounding off on their opinions as well as some others, such as, uh, you know, Keegan Bradley calling the, uh, the rollback monstrous and, and, and Ricky Fowler, um, d- uh, on the, on the other side of the rollback saying it was such a bad decision. So, uh, Garrett and I dive into it, uh, why this happened and what we expect from it. So without further ado, here's our discussion on the ball rollback. Garrett, we're back. I guess this was really unplanned. I didn't think this was going to be Tuesday's episode, but of course, I think uh, the big news over the weekend uh, caught everybody off guard, probably the USGA and RNA included. Uh, the Golf Digest, Mike Stakura, uh, basically broke the news that there was a there's an impending rollback to everybody in the game of golf. They are going to cut distances by about 5%, starting for the professionals in 2028. And everybody in 2030. So we are talking about news that is at five years out at the earliest. I guess four, four, right? Yeah, four years out at the at the soonest, and uh, for for everybody, six years out. So that was the big news. Uh, and instant reaction. Instant reaction is just I am surprised, even shocked. You know, I, I, I kind of, there were indications that something like this was coming, but I'm just astonished that we've gotten to this place. If you had asked me three years ago, whether I thought it was even possible that there would ever be a universal rollback on the table that the USGA and RNA might get behind, I would have said, no way it's not going to happen, but we have gotten to this point and we'll talk about how, how we've gotten here. Yeah, I think there's pros and cons of of the universal rollback. Um, I think you know, um, and we'll get into that. Uh, but but overall, I think you know, there's a lot of different ways, and and I you know, I I for one think that this, this is great news for the the entire golf ecosystem. That this is you know, this is a move that sets up a couple things at the at the large scale, like. There needed to be a understanding that regulation 
large scale regulation was okay. Um, and there needed to be somebody that was looking at the game at a, you know, a large scale. And what, what I mean by that is not about like, is this new product that we're going to make going to make us millions of dollars or not more so the game and how it's set up for the future, given the constraints on the environment, the changing, like society's changing tastes, um, and just, you know, making sure that golf courses aren't the ones that are taking on the brunt of the costs of, you know, increased distances across the game. So I think like overall, this is a really great thing for golf. I agree with you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the way that this has come about, because as I said, it's a little bit surprising that, that we've gotten to the point of universal rollback initially, as many of our um, listeners will remember the USGA and RNA proposed a model local rule for the golf ball, basically a rolled back golf ball that would be available to be used in competitive environments where a model local rule would be instituted. That was the first proposal. Essentially, it would result in bifurcation of the game. Amateurs, everyday recreational players would be playing one golf ball, the golf ball that we're currently playing, tested against the current standards. We'd be playing that ball. And then elite amateurs and professional golfers, if their leagues and tours so chose, would play the model local rule ball. And so their distance would be limited, reined in through bifurcation, essentially. And by the way, the way that golf balls are tested is important here too. I won't go too deep into it, but basically how it's done is a robot is set up to swing at a certain very high elite male speed and any golf balls that comply with USGA and RNA rules need to go a certain distance or can't go over a certain distance. And essentially what the new ball would be would be a ball that the robot would swing uh, a bit faster at, but would still have to go the same distance as before. So essentially it would be a somewhat more reduced flight ball. And the overall reduction in yardage would be something like 5%. So for elite players, that means something like 15 yards. For amateur players, it would mean something closer to 10 to 12 yards. I'm talking about men here. I think important to talk about here, just where we've gotten with technology. Um, Players with higher swing speeds yield greater rewards on the current technology. And what that means is that somebody that swings 110 miles an hour at a golf ball gets a lot more out of a Pro V1, let's just use them, or a TP5X or whatever it may be, than somebody that swings 95 miles an hour. There's like a level of speed that yields increase you know the compression yields increased gains in technology and then as you as the swing speed lowers it diminishes so with all this in mind i think 
and it, we nobody has seen this play out. You know, I would love to get my hands on uh, an example of one of these golf balls, but nobody's seen this play out. Is like it's very feasible that it could hurt elite players by fifteen yards and a normal player by five because the reduced swing speeds. It, you just aren't generating the gains with this golf ball technology that someone at the elite level is. Um, it could be pr- borne out that it's the exact same percentage. I would tend to guess, you know, and this is, I don't have any facts around this. This is just my understanding of current golf balls. I would tend to guess that the everyday, you know, 10 handicap is going to see less of a reduction from percentage basis than a tour pro. That is what I suspect too, but we really don't know until we see examples of this golf ball and have average players test them side by side. But again, my suspicion is the same as yours. I believe that players like Roy McIlroy compress the modern golf ball to a degree that players like me are not capable of. And therefore Roy McIlroy leverages what's inside the golf ball, the technology in there to a much greater degree than I do. But in any case, this has been the model local rule ball on the table from the beginning. Now there was a comment period and industry stakeholders were asked to give their opinion on the prospect of a model local rule and effective bifurcation of the game. And their response was hell no. We do not want this. We can't bifurcate the game. If we bifurcate the game, we lose the essence of the game. You know, this is what they were saying. The the magic of golf is that we all play the same equipment. That was the, you know, the, they kicked and screamed about bifurcation um, because of this. When, you know, I think a lot of people were like, this makes sense. Bifurcation makes sense, right? Like wood bats and aluminum bats and, and baseball, you know, but... Everybody who is, you know, now currently opposed to rollback uh, was also seemingly opposed to bifurcation. Yep. Well, I, I think uh, there are a number of people even who are saying, why don't we bifurcate who were previously saying bifurcation is no good? Um, I, I don't <laughs> I don't think that there's been a, been a whole lot of consistency in the positions that people have taken. But in any case, essentially. The, meth, uh, the, the message that the governing bodies got is that the industry doesn't want bifurcation. And the sense that we have gotten over the past few days, we in the fried egg uh, talking to people, is that some manufacturers, especially ball manufacturers, particularly the leading ones in the industry, were more afraid of the threat to their market share that bifurcation would pose than the similar threat from universal rollback. In other words, certain manufacturers actually prefer universal rollback to this bifurcation model. And in a sense, that's understandable because if the game were bifurcated, then a lot of equipment companies would then have to devote their RNA spend and their production capacity to two different product lines. Also, for years, um, ball count on on the PGA Tour has been such a 
important statistic, you right. know, most played ball the advertising on the PGA tour yeah, appeal. Yeah. And all of a sudden, if that ball is different than that marketing spend, the years of maintaining the, um, the number one ball on the PGA tour or a high percentage of PGA tour players using a ball would go out the window. Right. right. Because then it's like, okay, you know, we don't have this marketing weapon that we've had forever like play the ball that you know justin thomas plays play the ball that jordan spieth plays play the ball that rory mcelroy plays like that doesn't exist if you know they're playing different ball because you know amateurs you know the funny thing is i think like bifurcation would have led to this either way Right. Like, I think it would have gotten by. It would have have trickled down. We talked about this when when that news came out. Yeah, it was likely that, uh, you know, the the elite game is it leads when it comes to equipment. And I think that the influence would have been significant on all parts of the game. So anyways, this uh, this is, you know, you know, we could get to the timeline and everything, but it, it feels like where where bifurcation would have gotten us to in 2030 either way. Yeah, that that's very possible. Um, you know, I think that the governing bodies always wanted to have a broad influence on the game as a whole. I don't think their intention ever was just to affect the professional game because their research and their concern applies to the whole game, not just to the elite game. And so that's been true from the beginning. From the beginning, I believe the governing bodies have wanted to affect the entire game uh, as opposed to just one segment of it. But in any case, the, the pretense has, has come down, and now the governing bodies are reportedly going to say universal rollback is what we are going to do. This information came out late Friday night <laughs> after markets have closed, right? Uh, A report from Golf Digest comes out from an equipment journalist, from Mike Stachura. Sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, Mike. It could be Stachura or Stachura. In any case, I should know how to pronounce his name because he is a very prominent journalist, well-connected. He gets these scoops, and he did a good job of getting this scoop. Now, I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that his sources were not from the USGA and RNA. I think it is reasonable to assume that his sources were from the equipment industry. And hey, before you want to talk about something else that happens late on Friday night after, you know, after the market's closed, after work's done. What's that? Our our partner, FatCore. Uh, our champagne oh. partner. Oh, nice transition into the ad. Well, oh my I gosh. Leave yeah. people hanging. <laughs> and we talk about Friday night some more. Let's so anyways, Fat Cork's been a uh, a partner of ours for the year. And uh, I honestly, uh, I didn't really, I knew champagne. I drank champagne before Fat Cork. Did you drink champagne or did you drink sparkling wine? Well, sparkling wine, Prosecco, different things. Yeah. Um, sometimes champagne. Uh, my On wife was occasions. a big champagne fan. Yep. I I was like, okay, I could take it or leave it. At this point, I've become very into champagne um, because of Fat Cork. What Fat Cork does is they source their champagne from the independent growers in France. Um, just the same reasons that we like our golf courses built by great golf architects that are handcrafting this. This is why you should get champagne from the growers. 
what they're doing, the way the champagne industry works in general is that growers sell 80% of their grapes. And a lot of the big box champagne companies take those grapes and basically mash them all together, make them the same. They, lo- the they lose the sense of place. They lose the yeah. terroir. So the stuff that you really love about the uniqueness of flavors, um, the sense of place, as you just said, uh, in grapes, what Fat Cork does is it delivers this super unique, delicious um, wine that you can get nowhere else to your doorstep. So they have an awesome champagne club. I, you know, we've basically been been members. I'm not going to lie, since they partnered. And uh, my wife, as I said, huge champagne fan. I cannot tell you the excitement that comes every time this package comes uh, in in the mail. Like she will run out to the shed and she'll be like, "Did you know that this champagne was coming?" Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. You know. And and she is so excited. Immediately, they uh, you know a bottle or two goes into the fridge, and she is drinking that champagne as soon as is uh, politically correct, like uh, you know five p.m. <laughs> that champagne, champagne is popped o'clock. and open. Yeah. Um. And and so what I would say is that you know this is holiday season. You're looking for gifts for your partner. If they're into champagne, this is an incredible, incredible gift is this membership because you're giving a gift that you know your partner or yourself will really like, appreciate. It comes once a quarter. They've got three different tiers. They've got four bottles is is the weekenders, six bottles quarterly, the frequent fizzers, 12 bottles quarterly, the merrymakers. And for, for fried egg uh, listeners, They've got a little special promo. Anybody that joins the club, uh, the first 30 people that join the club, they ha- they did this collaboration with Seamus Goff. They made this awesome cork head cover. Uh, the first 30 people to join get a cork head cover as well as a champagne sleeve that keeps your champagne uh, cold. Highly recommend if you want to like bring a, a champagne bottle to a picnic or something. If you want to do something you know nice, you want to plan a special day you know, uh, at the park or something, uh, as well as champagne stoppers and uh, a few other goodies. Now, that's for the club. I would highly recommend joining it. But if you want to just try their champagne, use the promo code GOLF at checkout and you get free shipping. And free shipping is like 20 to $80, depending mm-hmm. on how many bottles you order. So this is right. not an insignificant sum of money. I saw on their website, they usually do free shipping for over $400 in orders. So, like, if you want to just go try a bottle, you get free shipping with the promo code GOLF. Um, this is at fatcork.com. Yep, fatcork.com. Um, awesome, awesome people. Huge golf nuts, like, super into it. Uh, and uh, this is awesome product. Really amazing customer service, customer support. Uh, thank you to our friends at fatcork.com. Now, back to the Golf Digest article. We were talking about how the news of the universal rollback broke, and it wasn't because the governing bodies wanted it to break <laughs> last Friday night. They're going reportedly going to the, the governing bodies were probably into a bottle of fat cork when it broke. <laughs> they very well might have been. I think, like, I think oh, no. most of us were were <laughs> to some degree into a bottle of something at that point in the night. Um, and <laughs> in any case, this article comes out. And uh, it is from an equipment reporter citing industry sources, likely equipment industry sources. And so, you know, you can see that there would be a motive from equipment companies to get out ahead of the story 
to make it a thing over the weekend before the USGA and RNA had a chance to put their message out there. And so I'm sure that there must be some frustration uh, among people at the governing bodies that this became a thing over the weekend, but also maybe they should have predicted that this would happen. Um, in any case, that's why we're talking about it now, as opposed to after the imminent announcement of this move to universal rollback. So that is essentially where we are. It's been debated on the internet all weekend. We've seen a lot of different arguments and points being made. I'm sure there are other podcasts coming out, other articles and newsletters being written, but it's blowing up right now. And that's why we're talking about it. Yeah. I, um, obviously I think like one of the, one of the things that you could say that the USGA has not handled well is the messaging. Nope. Um, totally agree. <laughs> so, <laughs> because the thing is, I want to be clear. Their position is strong here. I think now that's just my subjective opinion. Another thing that is more objective is that their research, their preparation has been exemplary. The Distance Insights Project is an extraordinary piece of research. But the problem is that nobody's read it. Some people, a lot of people, don't even know about it. And in my opinion, a lot of these spokespeople, a lot of the leaders for the governing bodies, have not done a good job of communicating the outcomes of that research in an effective, concise, clear way. And that's a problem. On top of that, you know, what's out there and what people are reacting to is a message that is written by someone who regularly writes for about equipment releases and equipment things like it is someone who is getting all their information from one, you know, seemingly getting all their information. I, I, I just I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sure the US Digest journalists know USGA people. Yeah. I don't think this is where this report yeah. was sourced from. Well, when the USGA gives people information, they, they embargo it. And the release comes like it's like you cannot yeah. release. They this want until, to announce it first. Yes. They don't they don't like the leaks. Yeah. <laughs> so. So anyways, I think this was done completely out of it. And and what what's happened is that the you know, people have run with the information that Mike uh, in this case has presented. And it's a great article. But like the USGA, what I'm kind of struggling with here is is this happened on Friday night and we're recording now at Monday afternoon, East Coast time. And there's nothing. The USGA Crickets. announced Curtis yeah. Cup, a Curtis Cup participation. <sighs> like that was the press release I got from the USGA this morning was about the Curtis Cup. And it's, you know, you've known that you're going to do this for, let's just say, three months, two months at least. You've communicated something to the equipment man manufacturers, which is why this report got released. So you've had communication. How is there not like just like a boilerplate statement, even even to the extent of like, hey, you know, we know this is out there. We're doing this like three bullets. We'll have more information for you at this date. Right. Like by by hanging there in, you know, it's allowing people to race around to conclusions like, you know, like that statement they could have released had could have had links to their their insights report. Right. It could have had like, here's how we got here. All yeah. these things. It's just it's just kind of crazy where 
again, the people reacting to this, the people that are talking about this are golf media. Most of golf media and I are propped up by equipment manufacturers. Their biggest spend and, and their advertising portfolio is equipment manufacturers and PGA Tour pros. Those are the people that are reacting to this. And they're all sponsored by the equipment manufacturers. This was an opportunity to somewhat put put out like a strong message. Um, and as of right now, as of this recording, there's been nothing. There are so many things that you could do to communicate the findings of their research or to convey a sense of what a rolled back world would look like. And very few of them have been done so far. And it feels like those of us who have supported rollback for a long time are kind of carrying the load here. And that feels a bit frustrating because our job really is to report on this stuff, to talk about it in as honest a way as we can. We are not interested in doing messaging for the governing bodies, but it feels like that responsibility has fallen to people who do support rollback, who do believe in shrinking the scale of the game a bit for the sake of golf courses. And so it's a, you know, it's an annoying position to be in. But with that said, maybe we could get to a few of the debates that have been happening about rollback, a few of the common arguments against it, and what we might say in response to those. Do you want to do you want to get there? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. What do you think about growing grass higher? <laughs> Just grow the grass. That's all you need to do. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Th- <laughs> this has been like a catchphrase from my golf spy, which is an independent um, equipment uh, media company. And th- th- I-, I go to their website a lot. I-, I look at the tests that they do for drivers and hybrids and stuff. I'm an equipment nerd. I I like seeing this kind of stuff. So I think they do a good job with that. But um, basically, (laughs) they've said, all you need to do is grow the grass and and you'll have a rollback. Um, So the, the USGA and RNA have actually done research on how much fairway mow height affects distance. And it's at most two to four yards. So that wouldn't have much of an effect, but I'll give more credit to the grow the grass slogan right now than I think it deserves and say that it's not just about fairway mow height or rough height. What grow the grass means to people, I think, is an overall setup and design philosophy that would limit distance at the elite levels of the game. And what I mean by this is. There are those who argue that we don't need to roll the ball back. All we need to do is change the golf courses, get the fairways narrower, make some more dog legs, maybe put some trees in there, more penalty hazards. Sure, you know, push the fairway mo height up, grow the rough up, and effectively what we would have would be a rollback because players would strategically approach courses in a different way. That's the overall philosophy that's being suggested here as a replacement for changing the equipment. 
how do you react to that? I, I think that it's crazy. We've already seen this philosophy, the philosophy of grow the rough up, narrow the fairways. Um, what <laughs> mow, that mow does, the grass back toward the tee. <laughs> what this philosophy does is it promotes distance even more. When fairways become impossible to hit, and the penalty for missing them, a small fairway, becomes extremely high. What it does is it promotes the, you know, it's just a game of chance. So the game of chance, it's best to just swing away and hit it as hard as you can. I think Rory had comments about this at Oak Hill, where like I think after like the first round, he he had this realization that he should just hit it as far as he could. Yeah, and he would end up in a better spot, like more often. Like I'm probably not going to hit the fairway anyways, so I might as well hit it as far as I possibly can. Wait, wasn't it? It was Xander who said this, right? <laughs> Somebody I can't remember who said it, but yeah. it was like they had this realization. It's like, well, I I might as well hit it as far as I can because I'm probably not going to hit the fairway anyways. So that's what it, the golf golf becomes that, which just promotes distance and speed even more, and eats away at the the skill i think what people are missing just in general it's not about low scores this isn't about low scores it's about how scores are being achieved on the pga tour and how scores are being achieved is it's become like almost every course is reduced to driver wedge i mean when you think about how long a golf hole needs to be to consistently get like a seven iron in in elite players hands I mean, you're talking about like a 550 yard hole yeah like i mean it's insane like 520 a lot of times ends up being like a driver nine iron for the long players and it's just it means like a it's it's about represent a representation of the game that is like this game is more than just hitting a wet a driver and a wedge it is about using all the clubs in the bag, right? I saw a pro, I saw Michael Kim tweet about like, oh, how like it would be great to limit, limit clubs in the bag, yeah. but not change anything. 10, 10 clubs, he was suggesting. 10 clubs. Yeah. I well, think, I, yeah, I don't think the players would, use 14 clubs anymore. That I'm pretty change sure that anything. Irons, uh, irons six through uh, four are pretty much out of use at this point anyway. They're only used on par fives and par threes. Like, so that wouldn't change that much. Like the problem, it's it's just moving around the problem. The problem is that the ball goes so far that it's almost impossible to get long irons in players' hands outside of par fives and par threes, right? And in order, like long par threes used to be 200 yards. Long par threes today are like 270 yards. I mean, that nothing... And golf signifies that as much. And I and I just I think that's the that's the thing that people are missing a little bit. And I understand like it's really easy to just look at scores. Oh, scoring's not that much different. Like golf courses are attempting everything they can do to curb scores. And scoring hasn't, you know, changed that much. But like the the means and the clubs and the skills that are required to score have never been less than now. Right. And to be clear, this is just one part of what we're concerned about with distance gains in golf, the stuff related to the pro game, 
the strategic approach to golf courses that has emerged in this era, the one dimensionality of the game as compared to how it used to be played 30 years ago, 40 years ago. This is, this is, that, that's just, this I, is I just, just one part of This is just one part of it, to be clear. Another part think, of it is, is more broadly applicable to the golf world. But we'll get I think people, people, are, people are like, oh, this only matters for the pros. It doesn't. If you go look at like state ams, this matters at state ams. State ams like have a, a bigger distance problem than than the pro game. You know, there's only so many golf courses in the in the country that could present a good test for people that hit at 330 yards, mm-hmm. right? A lot of state ams get contested at 6,500 yard courses. Where like I played in one with Nick Hardy. Nick Hardy was in college. Nick Hardy. Who's on the PGA Tour? He, I think, he finished fifty-one on the on the FedEx Cup. Nick Hardy played the sixty-five hundred yard course and shot twenty-eight under over four rounds. Twenty-eight under. It was incredible. It was utterly unbelievable, unbelievable. But for him, a sixty-five hundred yard course with limited trouble, like he was just hitting driver up there and just hitting wedges, like little flip wedges, close, like. There's nothing a golf course like that can do to protect against it. This there is a 300 yard hitter, somebody who is at 300 plus yards at every course in America. I would, you know, glean to guess. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. And this is something that people often forget about when they talk about the effect of distance gains on the average player's game. Yes, the average player isn't the problem in the sense that the 95 to 100 mile per hour driver swinger is not the problem but every course has a few players who hit the ball really far and the course needs to be sized for them right and that is where the issue with golf course size creeps in is that not just professional venues but normal golf courses try to size themselves for the longest players. Because if they don't do that, those players won't show up or will be hitting the ball all over the ballpark in a way that's not particularly safe. And and so, yes. I think the safety thing is the biggest biggest issue here. Like, there are long hitters at, at local munis. And you know what those long hitters don't do that PGA Tour pl- players do? They aren't as accurate. They present a lot of like I am like the least the least um into the idea of like safety as a golf architecture texture thing. Like I think like a lot of safety measures yield things less safe. But for these courses, when somebody is a let's just say a five handicap and hits the hits the ball three hundred and ten yards, they're very wild. And all of a sudden, it's like they're hitting it all over the place. Roads, because they can hit it 20 yards, 30 yards further than um, 30 years ago because of equipment. Let's be clear, because of equipment. And, and Tiger Woods talked about this in his, in his press conference at the Hero. This is all equipment gain. This is not. He talked about it. He's like, I hit the ball further now than when I came on tour because of the tech. That's what he said. All right. You mean he doesn't swing faster now? <laughs> so, so because of this tech, like I, I've gone back and played the beauty that I played in high school. I was a high school golfer. 
I played on a, on a team that was very good in our state. Like I used to hit like a mid iron into the first green at my beauty that I grew up playing. Now I hit like a, a 60 yard wedge, you know, like this is so this longer, it brings roads into dispersion patterns. It brings other fairways into dispersion patterns. It brings other greens into dispersion patterns that weren't there when the course was built. So this presents problems. And getting 5% back also reduces the dispersion pattern, that same 5%. The thing that I think is missing, and I guess we're hitting on another subject here, people saying, oh, you're making the game harder. I'm not sure that this is going to make the game harder. I I I have I think it might fractionally like very very small amount make the game harder. And for some players I think it will make the game easier because the ball will go less offline. Yeah, I mean that's very possible and it's very player dependent. Hey Garrett, let's take a quick break to talk about AG1. You know, about a year ago, I wasn't feeling great. I was, I was, uh, I was run down. I had done a lot of travel this year. Honestly, I've done just as much travel, maybe more travel. Um, and the thing that, you know, was different about this year than that year. And you know, this, if you're, you've been listening for the last year, uh, is that I've been drinking AG1. When I started drinking AG1 daily, what it really did was just help me get on a regular healthy routine. And what I noticed was, by t- drinking AG1, I was healthier in other aspects of my life. I started to exercise more. I had more focus, you know, when it came to work. I just got into a better routine. I set aside more time for my personal side of things. I was more efficient with my time working. And that's because AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement that supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. Not only did I replace my multivitamin with AG1, but I love that every scoop also includes prebiotics, probiotics, and digestive enzymes for gut support, Um, you know, a ton of other things, magnesium and B vitamins for energy support, adaptogens to balance my body's stress levels. I mean, it's just got tons of stuff packed in it. Um, I recommend this to all my friends and family um, because of, you know, it's, it's awesome. So AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why they've been a partner for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash thefriedegg. That's drinkag1.com slash thefriedegg. Check it out. All right, let's get back to it, Garrett. I want to get back quickly to the course setup and course design issues. You mentioned that Courses that grow their rough up and narrow their fairways often have the unintended effect of actually making things uh, easier for the longest players relative to the shortest players. I think that's true. But there are also courses out there. There's a model of design and setup 
where the advantage of distance is limited. These are the harbor towns of the world, right? The TPC sawgrasses. A lot of peat dye courses do this. And they do it through the use of penalty hazards, water hazards, sharp dog legs, plenty of trees, narrow corridors. Basically, these courses throw everything at the wall to get players to, you know, on occasion, back. take driver out of the bag. And so those courses do limit the advantage of distance in the way that many anti-rollback people would want. But here's the thing. We should want a variety of golf courses in the world. This is where our our love for golf architecture really comes out, I think, in this debate, Andy. It's when people suggest that all go- golf courses should should pursue the same model for setups for elite tournaments, it makes me cringe because I really wouldn't want to see golf courses do that. First of all, it would be very expensive. And that's an issue that deserves more attention, the financial consequences of distance gains for golf courses. I think that might be the single biggest factor motivating yeah. the rollback. Uh, and we haven't even touched on it yet. So there's the cost issue, but there's also the design and art issue. You don't want every golf course that hosts an elite tournament to pursue the same design philosophy. We like variety in our golf courses. That's one of the central beauties of this game at all levels is the variety of playing fields that we get to play on and that we get to see golf played on. And if you're saying that we have to homogenize golf courses to a certain model, to the to the Harbor Town or TPC Sawgrass model, as great as those courses are, they wouldn't feel so great if they were every golf course. I I always like to compare golf courses with restaurants. I think there's so many parallels. Just imagine if if the restaurant industry became everybody has to do the same thing. Yeah. Because of some technological advance that like, you know, eaters have, you know, technology is forced this to be the only way you can have a restaurant. You'd be like, wait, what? Like, I can't have different experiences. Like, this is the only way. And I, I and especially with golf on TV, like you contrast is so so important different tests are so important because you know that's what makes golf different than every other sport it's it's the player against a field uh, against the the course right and different courses are should be set up to reward different skills and different te- there should be different tests that's what makes the game so compelling that's what makes it different than Every other sport, like, you know, basketball, it's about how one team matches up with another team. Golf is about how this set of elite players match up against the course. That's the discourse like at every Masters is like when when a new star comes on the on the scene is like, how will he match up against Augusta National? Right. How will his skills translate at the Masters? Right. They're like one of the big storylines every year going into Augusta is like, why is JT, why is JT not have that, had that master's breakthrough that everybody has expected? His, his game should fit here wonderfully. Why hasn't he? Every time we go to a major site that we haven't seen in a while, it is what type of players are going to thrive at this golf course, right? And if all the golf courses become the same, that makes golf infinitely less um, compelling. and. 
the way that distance was advancing, the idea, and I, I think this is a later topic, the idea with Bryson finding a driver that he could hit anywhere on the face, you know, and that was his big breakthrough in 2024 was like, I can hit this driver anywhere and I get like a very good result. That's really bad for the overall game, right? Imagine a pair of gloves that, you know, a receiver in football could wear that they, you know, after a game, you know, this somebody, let's just use Marquez Valdez Scantling. He had a big drop a couple of weeks ago, you know, very fast, but unreliable hands. If he starts catching balls, all every ball that's thrown to him and people are like, what's happened with your ability to catch a ball? And he says, you know, I got these new gloves. And if my hand touches the ball, I'm going to catch it. Do you think that football fans would be like, well, that that doesn't seem right? Now it's not as impressive when a player jumps up high in the air and catches the ball with one hand and manages to come down with it. You're like, okay, well, I expect that. I think the thing, the overarching, so golf courses need variety. They need to be different tests. But also for, for the PGA Tour players, I think it's like actually been super unfair to them what they've lived through the last 10 to 15 years where there's this constant question hanging over. Is it like, is this player really that great? Or is the technology gotten to such a level that it, it has made that like made all these players great. Like, is this class of player really, are they that great? Are there that many great players or is the technology just made the game so simple that it allows a lot of players to be at this level? And I think that should be the guiding principle on all these decisions in terms of elite play. And this is where I hope that this is just the beginning of some regulation, because I think there are a lot of other aspects of this that you could go to make the product of golf far more fascinating on on a television side of things. I'm not saying that this needs to be the case for everybody. I think that golf would be significantly better with more regulation in the professional game. Make it more about the players and their skills and like, don't make technology that they have in their hands any part of the story. Right. I I think both of us would love to see possibly a monolocal rule related to a driver head uh, regulation, right? So smaller, maybe less spring-like effect. These are the things that are the factors that are currently regulated when it comes to driver head. I think that there's a way to come up with a model local rule that would be minimally disruptive, that would reintroduce some more skill into the driving game at the elite levels of play. Um, I believe that would be a tough sell in the amateur game. But I also thought two, three years ago that a rolled back ball would be a prohibitively tough sell for the amateur game. And maybe that, that's still the case, but uh, we, we have gotten to this point. So I want to address one quick question or, or a point of debate that people often bring, uh, bring up and then get into talking about the questions around whether this makes the game harder for amateurs, because I think you and I can discuss that really well. But I do want to touch on one thing quickly that people often bring up. This is maybe the single most common point that I see being made in opposition to rollback. And it is an honest confusion that people have. They ask, why should amateur players be forced to compensate for a problem 
that's limited to the top 0.01% of elite golfers. In other words, if this is just a problem that exists in the professional game and for professional courses, then why am I asked to be, why am I being asked to shoulder some of the load here? And, uh, you know, that that's just, it's a point that I see being made over and over. It's the elite golfers and the elite courses that are disrupting my average game at average courses. That There's a little bit of uh, anger here toward the elite trying to change how normal players play the game. And, and I get that. The thing is, if anybody, if anybody had read the research that came out, if anybody had engaged with the Distance Insights Project and looked at what they were studying and what they found, they would see that this problem is certainly not limited to professional golf venues. The distance gains across the history of golf have caused golf courses, not just for elite players, but for all players to get longer, to have to get longer, to expand their footprints, to push up their maintenance costs. And by the way, to push up your green fees. Maybe that process isn't very visible to you. Maybe you just see rising green fees and think, well, that sucks, right? Inflation or whatever. There are a number of factors that could cause green fees to rise. But part of that story of the rising costs of golf is that the footprint of golf courses has had to get better over the course of history in order to accommodate advances in equipment. Golf courses have had to push up their own budgets to react to what's been happening in the equipment industry. Golf courses need to pay those bills. And what the governing bodies are doing is intervening and saying, somebody needs to speak up for the golf courses here because the industry as a whole is not going to be sustainable if we keep going in this direction. And that's not just professional venues. That is so many golf courses Ones that host state amateurs, one that ones that host qualifiers, well, and just about, normal golf courses. How about the um the marketing term championship golf? Like yeah. a championship golf course. Everybody's seen that marketed from a local course. This is a championship golf course. And it came with a moniker of like being a certain distance, you know, sixty eight hundred yards, whatever, you know, seven thousand yards. And the idea of the championship golf course was poo-pooing the 6,300 yard old school course down the street, right? Like that was the whole marketing ploy was that come play this new golf course that's built. That's a modern golf course. It's, it is a long, tough, challenging test. And I think like there's been a, a, a reaction in the golf world and in, in a movement in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years to like, isn't it wonderful? These 6,300 yard courses that are like, that I could get around quicker. You know, they take three and a half hours to play sometimes instead of five. And, you know, there aren't as many water hazards. And, you know, it's really nice when you walk off a green and the tee's right next to it. Like there's been this reaction. I've seen people be like, you know, what's the big deal if you could knock 300 yards off a golf course? And it's like, are we really talking about three football fields of turf that don't have to be maintained as like not a big deal? Right. Or m maybe you can close down that back tee box that yes. you felt you had to build and, and you're just sending mowers out there every day. And it would be a lot simpler if you could just kind of chop that off of your 
maintenance routine and and uh you know maintain a smaller footprint and and i've seen some people talk about what about forward tees you know are forward tees going to be obsolete with this change now if if it's a five percent change for players that would play the forward tees i would doubt that it will be a full five percent but if it is you know what the leading, I would say, the most forward-thinking golf courses in the world resorts are doing with forward tees and and a lot of non-back tees, just in general. Yeah, they're in the fairway. They just put them it's in the pers- fairway. They find a flat spot accept- in the fairway and they <laughs> put them there. It's perfectly acceptable to put a forward tee in the fairway. Yeah, because the, the traffic is a little bit less, right? The, yes. the reason that a tee has to be big is if it gets a lot of foot traffic. But the most forward tee at a golf course. Frankly, it doesn't get as much traffic as the other and it ones, should and, be. and so it can be well, a little more casual. The, every golf course, see, this is just a, a separate sidebar topic, but like every golf course in America should have like a thirty-five hundred yard tee that's basically like in the fairway on every hole. Absolutely, a lot of them do it with plates for like kid tees. You know, mm-hmm. at one hundred and fifty, there's no reason there can't be another tee box. Like this is, you don't need a tee box. I set up our fried egg events often, and sometimes I put tee boxes that are on areas that I think would be really cool to hit a tee shot from that's not a standard tee box. It's okay. How many times when you were when I was playing a lot of golf and very competitively in my like early 20s, I played at a golf course that was 6,400 yards regularly. And you know what I did? I had a bunch of back tee boxes. I stretched that thing to 6,800 yards for myself, but the tee boxes were like in preposterous spots. They were like off behind a fairway on another hole. And I would, I found like a little flat fairway spot and I tee off from there and people would play with me. They're like, this is crazy. And it's like, yeah, I'm just trying to set this golf course up a little bit differently for myself. You know, like this is the thing is that, just like that, forward tees can just go to the fairway. That's what we, I mean, it's what we do so much at, at our events as we move. It's fun. And it's perfectly fine. It's the same as a tee box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, building a forward tee doesn't necessarily have to push up the maintenance budget. Building back tees does tend to because they're not typically within the existing footprint of the golf course. And so if people are equating, the uh, the maintenance cost of a forward tee with the maintenance cost of a newly built back tee or whatever, then uh, they just don't know what they're talking about. And uh, and the people who bring up these points, I mean, are are sort of the people who generally don't know what they're talking about, but are but are out there talking. Uh, and we all know who they are on on Twitter, et cetera. So moving on uh, from from those issues around golf course sustainability, financial as well as environmental, that is really the main issue here. And it's the one that is hardest to understand, I think, and that requires people to actually look at the research that has been done and and try to get what the governing bodies are really concerned about here on an industry-wide basis. Um, and I think that once you see some of the facts and some of the discoveries of this process that the RNA and USGA have gone through over the past several years, that Maybe you won't agree with it, but you'll at least understand it a little better and you won't have as many questions and confusions as you might right now. So highly recommend going and looking at some of that stuff. 
But uh, I'd like to talk about this issue of making the game harder for average players and whether this is going to make a, uh, a, a moment of rising popularity in golf less celebrated. Um, because, you know, golf has seen a surge since COVID and now we're just making the game harder for everybody and everybody's just going to abandon the game and, you know, we'll be back in the, in the dark ages again. All right. Let's talk about making the game harder for average players. Andy, you're not an average player. You're an exceptional player. I am closer to an average player, maybe, maybe on the, maybe on the higher end of ability for, uh, for most average players, but, but not significantly on the higher end. Do you think this is going to make the game harder? You talked earlier about, you know, maybe players who are a little bit wild, they might actually see their dispersion shrink a little bit. But in general, when you look at average players, do you think a 5% rolled back ball is going to make a big difference? I think for every player, it's going to be different. And for people to make these blanket statements about, you know, what, you know, everybody is going to do is kind of wildly off base. In general, I think there was data, uh, data golf had something at the PGA tour level, 10, 10, 10 yards is worth like a half a shot. So, and, that, and that's for PGA tour players who hit the ball in the, in the same the spot, spot on the club head pretty much all the time in a way that average players don't even come close to. So for the, for the very best players where like the very best players are like Lamborghinis, right? Yeah. Their, their margins like, are thin. Right. Yeah, and so that's exactly. why they pursue those, those marginal gains. And like, in a way, like they're, they're more consistent, but when things go bad, we see this, we see this with PGA. I mean, like Billy Horschel shot what, like 85 this year <laughs> at Memorial. Like when things go bad for really good players, it's like embarrassingly bad. Right. Like you, you just like, you can look like a complete dog. Like you could play with a PGA tour player who has a bad day and you you could walk off the course and be like, is that really a PGA tour player? Like, you know, but like what makes, so what I'm trying to say here is that say you hit four solid golf shots around, right? And this ball goes five to 10 yards shorter for those four solid shots and you've adjusted. I don't think this is a huge deal. Like half the country plays at altitude and then they go play somewhere else. That's not at altitude. You don't, hear people be like, well, it's way harder because it wasn't at altitude. I don't think I've ever heard somebody say like, you know, I'm struggling to play golf here because of the altitude. Is not because I'm, I'm leaving altitude. Have you ever heard somebody complain about that? There are innumerable factors that cause your distance off the tee to vary from day to day. Altitude is one of them. The sogginess of the turf is one of them. The air <laughs> density is one of them. You know, if we want to talk about regular players, like this is something that I think about all the time is like, I play really well if I've played three days in a row. And what happens to me is my body gets used to swinging a golf club again. And my, and my muscles get longer and I hit it. I'll hit it 20 yards further or 10 to 15 yards further three days in a, on the third day in than I hit it the first day, just because my swing short, I don't have like the speed. My speed comes back as I play more days in a row. Yeah. I mean, I don't think a lot of regular players ever even think about this, right? 
Like, yeah. I, I mean, I think of it. I, I have a, I have a bad back on a day when my back is feeling good. I'm a lot longer off the tee. <laughs> I, I just think that it's kind of like, yeah, sure. It might, it's going to be a little harder. I played with persimmons for a year and a half. I played with persimmons and, and seventies blades. And I can, I can confidently say like, I am 1000% sure that I got extremely like way better at golf because of that period. And why I got better was like, I was 40 yards shorter, um, off the tee. And I think like one of the things that I, I I'm good at in my personal game, this is all personal is that like, I, I hit a driver really well, a modern driver really well. And when I lost 40 yards, I stopped having a lot of wedges in my hand. And then I was hitting mid irons and you were and, hitting the Wilson goosenecks. Yeah. And I was hitting mid irons. <laughs> and so and it's meaningful. I, like the difference between a five iron and a eight iron yeah. with those, those clubs is he, big. hugely meaningful. So then I missed more greens and I missed more greens. So I had to get up and down more, but anyways, I came out of it a way better golfer because what was valued was hitting the center of the club face. What was valued, like my short game got better because I was chipping more on a round by round basis. And then when I went back to modern technology, I was a substantially improved golfer. But the thing I found was that when I played well, I still still shot really low scores. Yeah. Your ceiling, your ceiling was still there. Yes. And when, even despite being 40 yards shorter, my, my ceiling was still there. And, and that's the thing I think that like, this is such a small loss. You might shoot a few more scores that are a little higher, but I don't think you're going to lose the set. Like, because, because you could break 80 with modern club, with the current equipment, if you lose 5% on your, on your distance doesn't mean you can't break 80 outside of it. Yeah. Like, I mean, so much of golf is a mindset and attitude thing and a confidence thing. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think that like, yeah, sure. You might, you might be slightly worse. Your handicap might go up like a half, a half a shot. I I just don't think this is real. Maybe, maybe you might get better. I I mean, I don't know. Like I, I, there are so many variables when it comes to a mid handicap player's game, you know, I can shoot 90 on a given day. I can also shoot 75 on a given day. That's all within my ability. And my shooting on the lower end of that spectrum versus the higher end of that spectrum depends really on how many drives I hit out of bounds or how many pitches i absolutely lay the sod over or how many times i miss a one footer it's stuff like that that makes me shoot 90 and so hitting the ball 230 yards off the tee on a perfect strike versus 242 yards off the tee on a perfect strike okay that's a difference that's a club into the green and the and the club into the green is going to be a marginally shorter as well but you know what? That's not really what makes me score well or poorly. What makes me score well or poorly are the big mistakes that I make in every round. And if I make fewer of those, I'm going to do well on that day. If I make more of them, 
I'm going to do worse on that day. And that's going to be just as true after the rollback as it was before. I think the other thing is that when you're, if the ball's going less, your dispersion's smaller. And thus, the big cataclysmic mistakes that a lot of players make, every player in the world makes, become less because of the distance dispersion. The, the how far offline you hit it becomes smaller. So you might hit one extra fairway around, and that makes up for the one extra club that you're hitting into the green. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is a, I mean, it, the, the, the difference between uh, playing with a 5% rolled back ball and, and today's ball is, I think, going to be quite a bit smaller than, than people imagine. But at the same time, you know, I don't want to piss down people's legs and pretend it's raining. This is a difference. Like, if you could choose to be 12 yards longer off the tee versus 12 yards shorter, of course you'd choose to be 12 yards longer. Of course that is ultimately going to be an advantage. So let's grant that a rolled back ball makes the game slightly more difficult for average players. I would say two things to that. One is that if you believe that a rollback would be good for the game overall, if you review the research and look at all the issues from a global perspective and decide that a rollback would be a positive for the game, then I think you should be willing to make that small sacrifice for the greater good. And, and I, I, I know this is a, a little bit old fashioned to say this, or may, maybe a little bit lame, but shouldn't, I think something that's a little, that's unique about golfers is that we are concerned for the game overall. We're, we're devoted to golf. We love this game. And so I think we should take the perspective that we want to do something that is good for golf overall. That's one thing. The other thing is that if you took up golf because you wanted it to be easy, then I would say you're a somewhat unusual golfer. Most of us play this sport because it's hard. And the fact that it might become marginally harder, I don't think should necessarily be that big of a deal to people who are as sick as us. I, I think there's something to be said, too, that like some things are good about golf courses are going to get easier and some things are going to get harder if you hit it 5% shorter, right? Like a bunker you could clear will get harder if you can't clear it anymore. But there's also a bunkers that you probably hit into regularly that you're like, damn, that bunker. I always hit into it that you won't get to anymore. Like it. It's going to work both ways, right? Where some features are, and I think like what the big thing at the at the professional level of this changes is like actually restoring the long hitters having to think about bunkers, right? Like I think that's the goal of this whole thing is that like the game gets really out of whack with distance when the long hitters can bypass all the hazards. And the medium length hitters on tour then hit into it. And then it becomes, well, just build new bunkers. Well, then it's like, wait, so like 100 courses or 200. Uh, and if you start to think about state AMs or, or other smaller USGA events, USGA qualifiers. So down downstream, 500 golf courses have to do millions of dollars of renovation work to to 
put bunkers in places that these long hitters that are going to get longer are eventually going to carry, right? Like it's a self-perpetuating thing, but the idea of the distance coming back, like you're going to be like, Oh, I work my ass off to be able to hit it over this Creek. And now I can't. Well, there's also a bunker that probably came into your purview or a hazard that came into your, into your, you know, potential outcomes because of that same distance gain that cleared that one Creek. Right. Mm-hmm. So you just need to think about this. I think back when I played in, in the mid am, I think back to this all the time. There's a center line bunker on one of the holes. And I was, I was well, well inside the cut line to make match play going into my last nine of qualifying. And I completely shit the bed and my like downfall happened on a hole with a center line bunker on it. And during the practice round, I was like, what do I do? And my, my thought was like, just hit it at the bunker. You're not going to hit it in it. It's a tiny little bunker. Now, like I hit it right at the bunker, hit a good tee shot, went right into the bunker. Guess what? With a 5% rollback, I would have been short of it and I would have been fine, right? Like, there you go. <laughs> like that would have made that hole easier for me. Yeah. It, it's, so it uh, works go, both go, ways. Go, golf, courses, golf courses are not grids, right? Golf courses are chaotic. And so the effects of hitting it shorter on certain holes or hitting it longer are not going to be perfectly predictable. I think, I think that's the point here. Um, and then besides all that, look, if you're playing the rollback ball, likelihood is the people you're competing against or your buddies are going to be doing the same thing. And so if you've made gains over the past couple of years, if you've gone and done the, done the, uh, the whips or the, the, uh, the, the stack system or, yeah. Uh, super speed. Yeah. Super speed. Yeah. If you've, if you, if you've gone to the weight room, if you've, then that's great. You know, I think that the self-improvement drive of golfers in general is really admirable and something that should be celebrated. If you've made those gains, this isn't taking it away because you're still going to have those gains relative to other people that you're playing against. And I feel like that's really what matters to us in the end. Yes. Golf is a, a sport that's played against a course but our perception of what a long drive is is really relative to what other people are doing it always has been and so uh i think that people are going to adjust to this pretty quickly and it's going to be less painful than people think but in that vein it's kind of a bummer that it's so far off because people are just going to be worrying about it right up to 2030 or whenever it is that we're going to play this new ball. And, uh, you know, instead of just ripping the bandaid off, we're, we're going to have to stew in it for a while. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm girding myself up for, for some of the complaining and the whining that's going to happen in the interim. But I really feel that when the day comes, it's going to be less of a cataclysm than some people seem to think it will be. We're uh yeah, we're so far away is the great thing. Um I will say um I think there's going to probably be another rollback pod on this podcast once yeah. the official news is Apologies out. in advance. Um I think we I would love to dive into some things then um that I because we don't have the entire, you know, rollback uh the entire um fact base. I'd love to dive into some things that I probably would like to see more of, less of, like some, some maybe, you know. I think we'd both like to see more than 5%. That's something we didn't really talk about. But 5%, 
you know, it, it really isn't enough to to address some five- of the some of the problems that we talked about with sustainability and uh, the the financial expenditures of golf courses. Yeah, five percent is, is it's what's five percent in five years? Yeah, well, we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's uh, I wish it were ten percent or fifteen percent, but then then we would really be talking about the game getting harder, and so that yeah that would be the the issue. All right, Garrett. Thanks for coming on. Uh, this was uh, this will be the first of a few of these. We got we got six seven years to bat this around. Yeah, until, it's it's good to be invited everybody. to be on the podcast that I co-host. It's always always a pleasure to talk to you, Andy. Yeah. Well, we'll be back later this week with more. Fr- <laughs> Story's not going away. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. Thanks to Garrett for joining in uh, here on short notice. And big thanks to Matt Ruches for getting this thing uh, edited, produced, and uploaded in, uh, in short order. So, hey, a quick reminder, we are, we've, been, uh, we've been knocking it out this whole year with Club TFE. I think there's stuff in it for everybody. Uh, we did a little, you know, Garrett did a little rollback uh, Q&A with a bunch of architects who submitted how they would, you know, how their design philosophies would change with a 5% rollback. It was a fascinating thing to read through. So if you're interested in joining Club TFE, it's $120 a year. Um, you can do so at thefriedag.com slash membership. Thank you to everybody who supported us this year through that and, and other, you know, the pro shop, uh, the events, all the things. Uh, it really means a lot and it keeps our small shop a humming. So thanks. We'll be back later this week with another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. Golf Podcast.